Nice to have you with us, particularly if you're new or uh, visiting with us. I want to welcome you. Uh, this past summer, when uh, I was on sabbatical in the summer uh, last year, I enrolled in a course uh, down on the campus at UBC with a friend of mine at Cary College. And the title of the course was Vital Spirituality. And the course was taught by a lady named uh, Dr. Diana Butler Bass. And she has a new book she's releasing on December, sorry, February 14th. And her book is entitled, intriguingly, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. And so her books are very interesting to read. They're part sociology. They're part uh, almost a critique of institutional uh, church in North America in particular, part apologetics for a post-Christian era. And the, the thesis of this book essentially is that she's looked across the spectrum at uh, North America and every major institution, uh, organized religious group in North America is declining in numbers with the exception of those who are growing through immigration. And she herself is an Episcopalian. And so she asserts that the mainline end of the theological spectrum is experiencing what sociologists now call liberal drain. And this is where a person decides that they're no longer affiliated with a church that they grew up with on that spectrum or an organized expression of religion, but they still believe in God. So what are they? And so now sociologists have coined a term to describe people in this category, and they are called spiritual but not religious, S-B-N-R. How many of you are familiar with that term or that acronym? Have you heard that a little bit before? All right. Um, this, is a, this is a term that's gaining popularity, and this acronym, if we had not scrapped the long-form census in Canada, would probably show up eventually on there. Uh, might be a category. The closest that Statistics Canada gets to this is something called has religious affiliation but does not attend religious services. I like SBNR. I think it's a little more accurate. It's a little easier to say. But um, so when people in the, not on necessarily on the mainline church, but people in like the Protestant evangelical world look at charts like this where the bottom graph, the dark blue, is no religious affiliation. And then the light blue on top of that is has a religious affiliation but does not attend religious services. They, they have a whole bunch of hand-wringing over these types of charts and graphs uh, for a wide variety of different reasons. And uh, some of it, I don't know why there's a lot of hand-wringing in the evangelical world. I think some of it is because of some of the, and I think the very first one up there on that chart, spiritual, is it's amorphous. It's sort of hard to define. Who, whoever is using the term gets to define it. A little bit, and so sometimes evangelicals think that well, spiritual smacks of spiritualism or some kind of internally derived religious experience that made it up on the list there as well, and so rightly so. There's a little bit of concern about well, how is that lived out, and what does that actually mean? Uh, so I want you to watch a clip with me from a recent Oprah show. You thought she was off the air, but she's tricked all of you. Uh, you're so wrong. She has a show on Sunday mornings, and it's called Super Soul. Sunday. You get the pun clearly in anticipation of next weekend. Uh, and this is where she converses with people of different faith perspectives on topics of spirituality and culture. 
And so I want you to watch this interview. It aired in the month of December called, Can You Be Spiritual But Not Religious? Can you be spiritual and not be religious? Yes. You can be both? Yes. So they don't have to converge? No. Okay. I mean, I say that because there's wonderful people who have spiritual experiences on their horses right. on Sunday morning. Uh-huh. And they just are not going to bother with this religious stuff for a lot of very good reasons. And some are lazy reasons. Mm-hmm. Let's respect everybody exactly where they are. And let's let grace lead them where grace needs to lead them. You don't want everybody to be in church on Sunday? No, I don't. Wow, what kind of preacher are you? I want everybody to know God. You want everybody to know God? I want everybody to, to know the love that I know that fills their hearts so much that they are joyful and peaceful and... They are respectful of every human being. I, what I want, Oprah, is to turn the human race into the human family. Wow. And you don't have to be in church to, to do be that. a part of that. Because Gandhi was not in church and he did that. There are a lot of folks outside the Christianity who do that. Okay. So coming to church does what for us then? The experience of grace, of church, of knowing God's love happens so much faster when I'm with other people. It happens faster than when I'm by myself. Why? Because of the energy field there? Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's it an is. energy field that is present. It's real. And uh, that's what Jesus, that's why Jesus said this eternal truth that mm-hmm. when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, if you can take that in a non-literal way and understand yeah. that God was speaking through Jesus at that point, mm-hmm. then it is important for people to gather. All right, so the question then that I have for you is, how do you respond to a person that says, I'm spiritual, but not religious? Do you have any anchor points in the scripture that would give us some guidance around these issues or would give us some guidance in this conversation? Anything in the Christian tradition that would guide us in this conversation at all? And where we may come out to some different conclusions uh, than Reverend Ed Bacon did when that was aired. And the answer to that question is, yes, we do have some guideposts for us. And we find them in the book of Acts in chapter 17. And this January and February, we are continuing our series called Now is the Time. And this is a study of the second half of the book of Acts. And we're looking specifically at the conversations that happen in the second part of the book of Acts and the storytelling opportunities and strategies of perhaps one of the most intriguing and sharpest philosophical and literary minds of the first century, the Apostle Paul. And Paul has embarked and given his life to a mission to see the life-changing message of Jesus take root and grow in different cultures in the early part of the Christian movement. And one of the things that I love so much about this series is the parallel that exists in our day and in our time to the things that 
Paul bumped up against in the first century. So, for example, in the first century, the dominant spiritual architecture of the known world was pluralism. And that is that uh, all roads lead to heaven. Uh, There's this powerful sense in the first century of I take my individual beliefs. There's some state religious observances. I mix those together with some regionally deistic practices. Like we have a little god in our city here and pagan idolatry and mix it all up together into this blend that kind of feels comfortable for you as an individual. And all kinds of weird stuff would come out of that that would make even Oprah uncomfortable. But pluralism, friends, is likely going to be, if you think about it, the the dominant religious conversation, the dominant spiritual architecture in the 21st century as well in our world. And it's going to be the operating system, just like it was in the first few centuries. So in that sense, the later part of the book of Acts should be very fertile ground for us for discovery. And one of the goals of our series as we teach through the second half of the book of Acts is to equip you as an individual with the skills necessary to have conversations around issues of faith with a vast diversity of people who perhaps don't share all of the same presuppositions or life experiences that you do. And so we see that when we look at Paul's life and his experiences. We left him last week in chapter 16 in the city of Philippi. He's just been released from jail, and he answers that question, a powerful question, what must I do to be saved? He shares the gospel there uh, with Paul and Silas. Then they travel on from Philippi. It gets a little rough through Apollonia. And they go to a city called Thessalonica at the beginning of chapter 17. And they begin to talk to people who have a very strong understanding of how God has worked in history in the synagogue, uh, the Jewish people and God-fearing Greeks in Thessalonica. And that doesn't actually go very well at all. In fact, they get run out of town by religious people. And so then they go on to a smaller town called Berea. And the text says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, that these people were noble people and they searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was teaching was true. And Paul here in this context in Berea is talking to people who are uh, much more conversant with this set of framework and this understanding over here, religious history. They're very conversant with Old Testament texts. They're very conversant with religious experiences, their language, their methodology, their source of authority, everything that they understand and know. Paul's on very common ground here with these people. And so the conversation, you know, that tends to go fairly well until yet again, people stir up some trouble. And then Paul's kind of forced to leave the city there. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we find Paul in the city of Athens. And here he encounters a whole new crew, a whole new group of people. This is, we're going to come to discover, an entire city that is much more familiar with this architecture for their conversations about connection with God. They're much less familiar with that architecture. And so Paul gets into conversations with them They're much more spiritual and not religious in the traditional sense of the word. They are much more comfortable with words like experience and connection and nature and transcendence made it up onto the board there. Uh, Wonder is often a word that's evoked when you ask somebody to do some word association with that. 
even prayer and other words. And so Paul begins to wander around this city and this group of people while he's waiting for his traveling companions. And we're going to pick the story up in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. So Acts 17, 16 says, While Paul was waiting for his traveling companions in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all of the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So let's pause there for a minute. There's actually a lot to take away just from these first two introductory verses. Now, the first thing that we notice is that Paul is upset. Uh, it says that he's distressed. He's deeply troubled. And so we have to ask the question, why is he deeply troubled? What's bothering him? Well, he looks around the city of Athens, and everywhere he looks, he sees uh, this spirituality and this culture of spirituality everywhere in the city. But he's upset because people are missing the very reason for which they have been created, a vitalized and personal connection with the living God who cares for them. And they're chasing after every kind of religious experience imaginable. And Paul recognizes the consequence of this unbelief and he, he, that stirs something in him. And he's moved to action. And I was intrigued as I read that. And I thought, you know, when was the last time that you or I were distressed in any way over the consequences of unbelief around us? When was the last time you were troubled that somebody that you knew was actively walking away from God? Some of us have got a little bit too comfortable with apathy in this category. And it ceases to trouble us anymore that when we look at that chart, the very first one that I put up, that there are hundreds of thousands of people within a very short radius of where we sit today who are rushing around after everything but God. And so I'm asking God to stir our hearts again and asking God to stir my heart again in 2012 and collectively to stir our hearts again in 2012 with his heart for those people. But the other thing that I notice in these verses is very carefully what kind of action Paul takes and does not take. He's stirred in his spirit. He's, he's distressed. He's troubled. But notice then the absence of thundering accusations or volatile public guilt heaping. He doesn't rail in the public squares. Notice where Paul directs his emotions. It's not towards shouting at people. It's not towards political projects or protests. The text says that he spent time reasoning with people which means there was proclamation with ample room for discussion and dialogue. It's actually very Socratic of Paul, which would make sense that he would use the Socratic method because Athens is the city of Socrates. And so he understands his audience. This is a, a group of people that are used to this type of question and dialogue instead of being berated continuously. Continuously. 
And so it's interesting to me to see also where Paul spends his time. He begins as he has his custom and habit of doing in the synagogue, but he's also engaged in these conversations in the public square. And his behavior and his interaction with people is constrained by wisdom and respect, but he's very active outside of the synagogue in building these relationships and these dialogues with people. He doesn't hang out only with religious people because they might be a little bit more receptive to his message. He actively engages in public discourse, in public places with people. Places like, I don't know, say, Starbucks. And eventually, these conversations begin to kind of broaden Paul's world in the city of Athens. And he gets into discussion and some significant intellectual repartee with two groups of people. So let's keep reading in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, where it says, He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, I don't know, he seems to be preaching something about some foreign gods. So they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. And then there's a little parenthetical uh, editorial comment by the writer, Luke, who says, it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all of the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So we get this window again into this picture of a city that is highly enamored with spiritual conversations. They love to have spiritual conversations. And so the two groups that Paul gets into dialogue with represent very prominent worldviews at this time in history and in the city of Athens. The Epicureans, and this world, these worldviews are still around today. They just don't have these titles to them. The Epicureans were a group that believed that God was distant and was not going to get involved in the world in any way, shape, or form, even if he did exist. They believed that uh, the best then that we could do was make sure that we treated others fairly well kind of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, a kind of quasi-morality golden rule. But in the end, really all that mattered was the pursuit of self-actualization, pleasure, and uh, it was about living your best life now because nothing else was going to happen and no God was going to intervene in your life in any way. So just do whatever you want, so long as it kind of worked out generally with the people around you and you didn't go about hurting too many people. So that was the Epicurean's belief. And the Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheistic. They believed that God was a, a cosmic world soul that inhabited everything and that called them to be in harmony with nature. They believed in rational thinking and individual determinism and uh, that that was the highest form of self-expression. And Stoic spirituality can be summed up in a poem uh, the lines of the last lines of the poem Invictus, and this showed up in the movie recently of the same title, right? So the original poem by W.E. Hentley reads uh, the last few lines, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, 
I remember this line from the movie, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so the Stoics believed that that was what you should do. You should kind of take charge of your own spiritual life and development and self-actualization. And uh, God was everywhere and he would help you somehow in that process and everything. So Paul begins to debate and discuss the finer points of their philosophies and these opposing worldviews. And he presents Jesus and Jesus' resurrection and say, hey, listen, this is very interesting stuff. We're not quite sure about this. And so they take him off to a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill, as it was known, to share his story and to tell what it was that he believed in. Now, this place was like the highest level of um, autonomous court in the area. It was the place that uh, the Romans had allowed uh, Athens, which was now, you know, the Athenians, they had had their glory in kind of 4th and 5th century B.C., and now this is kind of into the first century AD. So they're kind of past their prime a little bit. Rome is the new dominant power. But Rome figured, you know what, we'll just let them kind of do their own little thing. And they can make their own decisions about what kind of religions they want to have and don't want to have. And so they put up this little court uh, that would kind of help uh, solidify and help those discussions move forward. And so Paul gets invited to talk about this. And they have authority in this region to make all the decisions about religion and morality and spirituality. And so as you listen to the speech that Paul makes here, I want you to ask yourself, what are the transferable principles that you think you could take away from his presentation so that your own conversations with people who are spiritual but not religious could be more effective and more holistic? So listen to the text of this. The text's not going to come up on the side screens. just want you to hear Paul's presentation or follow along if you've got version downloaded onto your phone. So reading... Uh, In Acts chapter 17, he's been invited. He stands before the council and he addresses them as follows in verse 22. People of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, very spiritual. As I was walking along, I saw your many shrines and one of your altars actually had an inscription on it to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing it is the one that I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. The human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all of the nations throughout the whole earth. And he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. And his purpose was for the nations to seek after God. And perhaps they could feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As your own, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by a craftsman from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man, Jesus, that he has appointed. 
And he proved to everyone who this is by raising this man, Jesus, from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. And among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. This speech in Acts 17 is a masterful piece of conversation with somebody who is spiritual but not religious. Paul begins his speech with a statement of fact. I see that you are very spiritual. You're highly superstitious. You're into a lot of religious stuff. So much so that they have put the energy into placing a statue in the city to an unknown God to cover their basis just in case they forgot someone. See, like, just like many cultures in the world today, Athenians were deeply interested in placating the gods and making sure that the gods were happy with them in every way. And so their way of doing this was to put up temples and to put up statues and altars so that just in case a particular god might get angry with you and come on a rampage to your city, they would see the temple and the altar that you had and say, oh, I see they must worship me here. Well, I guess I'll just leave them alone. They're, they must be good people. And so can you imagine the fear that you would have living day to day to day, not knowing if you were on the right track individually or as a society spiritually? Having to please every God imaginable. Having to invest inordinate amounts of time and money and resources just in case that might be the God that gets angry with you today. It's a daunting project. And so Paul, again, doesn't say to them, you people are idiots. I can't believe you've gone to all this trouble. Paul doesn't yell at them. He sees this as an open door for conversation, as a jumping off point for further dialogue with them about who God is and God's revelation in the world. And so we've got these kind of existing uh, idea clusters. Religion is over on this side, and spirituality is over on this side. And if you read the ones that were up there, you can see that a lot of it has to do with structure, systems, dogmatics, definitive declarations about this, that, and the other thing. It uh, has to do with things um, that uh, rules is one of the things that's up there. It's anthropomorphic is another one. And someone wrote up, it's downright satanic. You know, if it's that structured and organized in that way, can it be used to create you know, all kinds of religious and spiritual abuses? Probably, and has been certainly in history. Over here, we have another idea cluster of something that is a little bit uh, beyond science. It's a metaphysical experience. It can mean anything to people. And so Paul, working with the two systems, he actually introduces a third whiteboard to the conversation. And on Paul's whiteboard, the top says, God is dot, dot, dot. This God whom you have not known, but have been seeking after in so many of these different ways, I want to tell you about him. And so he starts his conversation, says, listen, first thing you need to know about God, God is the one true God. He is the creator 
all-powerful creator of heaven and of earth. And this is a wonderful point to begin the conversation with people of diverse religious backgrounds for us even today. I can remember going over to our neighbor's house, and in our neighbor's, um, they're self-professed non-practicing Sikhs. And so they're, they're spiritual but not religious. Uh, and so we went over, I went over for their house blessing when they finished building their house. And so sat down on the floor, covered my head because the Holy Book was present, um, and started to talk to all of his uncles who were all older uh, farmers. And so we got into conversation uh, about all kinds of different things and talking about ecology and farming. I grew up in a farming community. And soon the question turned to, well, why would we even bother taking care of the world? Why should we care for the environment? And we spent an inordinate amount of time actually agreeing on all kinds of things. That Because if God created the world, then he wants us to care for it in some ways. And so we had very productive conversations about that together with uh, my neighbor's uncle. Because we shared that aspect of our worldview with each other. And it built bridges for further conversation about what that looked like. And so Paul starts there because it's largely a point for those who believe in God or who believe in a God is a point of agreement that God is the all-powerful creator of heaven and of earth. Then Paul says, uh, well, God is not only that, but he's the provider of everything that we need. Now, the Athenians rushed around providing things for these gods, building temples, altars, burnt offerings, inordinate amount of religious activity. And Paul simply asked them, hey, like, if your gods are really gods, do they need all of this stuff from you? Because have you ever thought that that might be at cross purposes with the definition of an all-powerful creator of heaven and earth? That they would need something from you or that human hands could kind of manufacture anything that they would be interested in. And so Paul invites them to consider that God's purpose, he had a purpose in creating the world and all of humanity, and that is, in verse 27, that he's interested in humanity searching for him and finding him. The word that Paul uses here is the, the, the metaphor of a room that is pretty much dark, but has a little bit of light in it. You know when you're in one of those rooms, you can kind of like you go down in your basement and there's a light on way down in the far corner of the basement, but you're just getting down, your eyes are getting adjusted to it, and you're starting to bump into stuff, and you're not quite sure where everything is yet, because there's some light, but you can't quite see what you're after. That's the picture that Paul is trying to create here. He says it's like people are groping around trying to find something of substance to cling on to. And the scriptures remind us often that God's desire is for you and for me and for everyone to search for and to find him. And I love that phrase, though he is not far from any one of us, Paul says. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you're on a spiritual journey of investigation and exploration and wondering if this whole God thing This whole Jesus business is just all smoke and mirrors for a bunch of people that need a crutch to get through a difficult life? Or is there something of substance that you can cling on to here? And if you're on that journey, I want to challenge you today to talk to people. 
Talk to people that you know. Come talk to myself or Pastor Keith or as we conclude here today. Stop groping around aimlessly in the dark. We would love to talk with you about how God might want to reveal himself to you. And you can leave here with a sense of assurance and certainty as you begin a new phase in your journey and your relationship with God. Because the light is on. We want to help you find that. That's part of our mission here at Jericho and as individuals. Now, if you've been following along with us in the book of Acts, you may have noticed that Paul likes to quote stuff a lot. Most often, when he's in this environment, he's talking to people who are Jews. They're very familiar with religious systems and structures or God-fearing Gentiles. So they also are all familiar with that stuff. And so most often there, he's quoting the Old Testament. Here, he actually summarizes, does a brilliant job of summarizing a lot of the Old Testament, but doesn't actually directly quote from it. He actually quotes two, um, two cultural quotations that he pulls embedded in these verses. The first one is by a Cretan poet named Epimedes. And uh, Epimedes wrote a lot about Zeus and about Olympus and the gods. And so he wrote this poem about Zeus that says, Zeus, thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. And so Paul quotes him here. And the second quote is also actually from another pagan poem. And it's from the fifth line of uh, a dude by the name of Erastus who grew up where Paul grew up in Sicily. And the fifth line, his poem says, All ways are full of Zeus and all meeting places of men. The sea and the harbors are full of Zeus. In every direction, we all have to do with Zeus, for we are also his offspring. So the question that we have to ask ourselves here is, what in the world is Paul doing by quoting these two poems. Is he agreeing with these guys that Zeus, the Greek uh, god of mythology, is the same as God? Well, not quite. See, Paul's continuing to argue his theology of general revelation here, that God is the one who is actively involved in the world and is actively sustaining all of creation. He's using their own poets, their own language with which they are familiar, arguments that they can understand and already agree with, and building bridges of conversation with them to tell them about God. I think this is highly instructive for religious people in particular as we learn to talk with people who are spiritual but not religious. Because a lot of times religious people have a default language an architecture that they go to that people that are not familiar with it or have had some negative experiences with it are unfamiliar with or would like to distance themselves from. And so when it comes up in the conversation, it tends to sidetrack or derail the conversation. And so Paul uh, takes language architecture from this board and uses it to try and make the point that he's making. He's working very hard at contextualization because he takes it very seriously. 
He understands the culture and the people that God has called him to reach and placed him in proximity with in this geography. He's read their stuff. He listens to the things that they're listening to. If Paul was alive today, he would be watching Oprah and reading Eckhart Tolle. He would have read the Quran and listened to the Dalai Lama because he would read it with discernment with a view to seeking to understand the worldview of his audience and his listeners. He does this with discernment because contextualization should never degenerate for a person who believes in Jesus into syncretism, which can happen. And it should never degenerate into simply being relevant for the sake of being relevant. But Paul understands that you can agree with certain elements of culture and even other religions without compromising the gospel. I love the way that F.F. Bruce, a mid-20th century scholar, says it. He says, We may quote appropriate words from a well-known writer or speaker without committing ourselves to their total context or background of thought. So, I would love if more evangelicals would stop being afraid and wringing their hands all the time Because contextualization is not capitulation to the lowest common denominator. Contextualization is just good missiology. I wish that evangelicals would get over some of the hand-wringing and get on with the business of building appropriate bridges to people who are seeking after God. All right, I could stay there for a long time, but we got to keep going. Paul continues his thought in verse 29, and he says, Since all of this is true, since God is powerful since God provides everything that we need, since God is interested in us searching for him, since God is actively sustaining all of creation, is currently involved with the world, then there's an incredible response that is called for. And the first part of recognition is the recognition of God's incredible mercy because Paul recognizes and reminds his listeners that God, in verse 30, is incredibly tolerant and patient. Remember, Paul is speaking here to a group of people that are gripped, they are so gripped by fear and living day to day with the idea that God is ready, their gods are ready at any minute to zap them for all of their evil deeds. And Paul just says to them, you know what? God has put up with a lot, but now he is deeply interested in repentance. He's deeply interested in you turning away from evil and from your fear and turning towards him. And there is a deeply compelling reason to do so. Because not only is God the creator of the world, the sustainer of all things, not only has he been patient and kind, but God himself has expended incredible resources and personal cost to redeem the world from judgment by sending his own son, Jesus, the man he appointed, verse 31 says, to be crucified and to be raised from the dead. And Paul puts this as the linchpin in his argument. It would be interesting for you to go home and make a list, read his argument, and look at all of the things that he left out that you may have been, if you were ever trained in a traditional gospel presentation or a canned presentation, that are in those things, but that Paul left out of this particular discussion. And try and think, well, why might that have been? Paul uses as the linchpin of his argument the power of God. In raising Jesus from the dead, God has demonstrated, Paul says, his power to save all who come to him. 
Jesus is not just a moral example. He's the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, who will one day come to judge the living and the dead. And when he does this, Paul says he will be just in his judgment. And that answers the question why it's insufficient or truncated to simply be spiritual but not religious, or even to be spiritual and religious. Because ultimately, those aren't the questions that God is asking when, it comes, when he comes to judge the world. How I treated the planet doesn't get me into heaven. How tolerant I was towards people of diverse background is not the ultimate measure of my eternal destiny. Go back to Paul's answer last week. He asked, the jailer asked a simple question, what must I do to be saved? In the book of Romans, which is another one of his arguments, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And so Paul makes his argument on that basis. And the team is going to come, and they're going to actually move through a song of response that is a worship song, and it's a song that actually mirrors this exact same theme and process that Paul does in Acts chapter 17. And as they do that, very instructive for us to learn about talking with people who are spiritual but not religious. And so I want to put a couple pointers up there for you. The first one being just begin with where they're at, not where you want them to be. The second being cultural relevance is not capitulation to idolatry. The third is that explore and celebrate common ground with people as you work to build bridges. And then the last part is be prepared for a wide variety of responses. And you may want to add a few of your own observations or thoughts and ideas. And so I'm going to flip over a new piece of paper on each of these whiteboards. And if you have an idea that came to you from this text that you say, I think that might be a way that we could have productive conversations with people who are spiritual but not religious. Just write it up there. And then we can take that away with us and learn from each other on this journey. So Dustin and the team are going to come. We're going to sing a song which has this same pattern to it. And I want you to listen to what it is that God is saying to you. And if you have some ideas that you want to share with the rest of us about how to have these conversations, put up some pointers for us and we'll learn together and grow as we journey in this conversation of talking with people who are spiritual but not religious.